pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you've walked ahead of it, walked ahead of us in it, and you've planned this day according to your purposes and your perfect way. You've given us uh, your spirit to guide us, and so, Father, we thank you you've brought us to this place right now. We thank you, God, that uh, as we continue in your presence, as we've been here uh, together, that, uh, that your spirit is the one that will open the word of God and illumine our hearts, illumine the word of God to our hearts, and help us to understand your message for us today, Father. We thank you that uh, there is uh, no chance or circumstance here that everyone's here by your appointed purpose and plan. So we thank you, God, for what you're going to do in each life. Have your way in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, talks about gospel-centered warfare. So if you'll turn in your Bible, if you have that, in your Bible app in your phone or the pew Bible in front of you, <clears throat> to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, and we'll read that together. <clears throat> For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the gospel of, of, sorry, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, getting ahead of myself, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The gospel says that I can rest in what Jesus did and let God win my battles. So to understand what Paul is saying here in this particular section, it's important for us to understand the verses that come before it. And one of the issues, and the verses that come after it, actually. One of the issues that Paul addresses in the book of 2 Corinthians is, Paul, is his need to defend his apostleship, um, and really to defend the gospel itself. And that begins here in chapter 10 and continues for the next couple chapters. In chapter 11, verse 5, Paul sarcastically calls uh, the, those who are accusing his accusers, uh, those false teachers, who are questioning his apostleship, questioning his authority, he calls them super apostles. I don't think he meant that as a compliment. Uh, these are most likely, and most would say that these are most likely, uh, the same folks that Paul battled all through his life in ministry, the Judaizers, those who followed him everywhere that he went trying to undermine his teaching, his authority, and even the gospel itself. They insisted that in order for someone to become a true believer in Christ, that they must first become a Jew. Unfortunately, I know some folks that believe that today. The dear brother in Christ that has completely gone off the rails in that regard. In other words, they say that in order for you to be a, a fulfilled, a complete follower of Christ, you have to be circumcised and follow all of Jewish law in addition to receiving Christ. This is the same thing, really, that the Council of Elders in Jerusalem argued over uh, with regard to the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was mostly a Gentile church, uh, or at least mixed-race church, um, just like the church here in Corinth. And what they would insist that Paul do, or that Paul was doing, rather, is that he was operating in the flesh and not according to, to the Word of God. And he was teaching these uh, Corinthian believers to do the same. And that they could only ever 
be what they needed to be in Christ by adding the law to the gospel. And unfortunately, this false teaching has come uh, to affect uh, not only uh, their view of justification, but of sanctification uh, as well. Um, Now, I would hope that all of us here, most of us here anyway, uh, would agree that God does not need my help to redeem me, Uh, that my justification was purchased on the cross and that I had nothing to do with it. I did not contribute one thing to it. I only benefit from it. However, there is a a version of this uh, false teaching that Paul uh, was fighting that really many of us kind of, myself included, those who have grown up in the church or are religious, really, uh, even, um, we've unknowingly bought into. Uh, And many believers that, um, that fall into that category understand that it's God's work in saving me. But then after that, with God's help, of course, we'll acknowledge that, that's when my work begins in earnest. As I try to have victory over sin, and I try to live the life that is pleasing to the Lord, and I give it my best effort. But here's the thing, folks. If God needs my help in order to sanctify me, we're not talking about justification now. I'm not talking about salvation, eternal salvation. We're talking about sanctification when God sets me apart and makes me like his son. If God needs my assistance in order to make me more like Jesus, if God needs my obedience, let's put it to the point, in order to conform me to Christ's image, that is, if my conformity to a set of standards, whatever they may be, must accompany God's grace in order to complete the work that God began in me. Another way of putting it is, if sanctification is a synergistic relationship, that is a collaborative effort rather than monergistic, then I will never become like Christ, ever. It will never happen. If my sanctification depends in any small measure on me and my efforts, then I will never be able to have victory over my sin here in this life. I will never walk in true obedience to Christ Christ and my sanctification, if it depends in any way on my efforts, is not going to happen. I know that sounds like a pretty definitive statement, but I believe it with all my heart. Because the reality is God does not need my help in order to sanctify me. Romans 10 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, that is the fulfillment of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we have that as a benefit. The righteousness that I need for this life, I've already been given in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we, those who are in Christ, might become the righteousness of God in him. And here's the thing, when God looks at me, he does not see me, he sees the righteousness of his son. I was thinking about this a lot this past couple weeks. And uh, I don't know about you, but I tend to focus on me I tend to look at life through my eyes. 
And I tend to look down my nose at other people's need for anything. Really, we wouldn't say that out loud, but really that's what we do because we're so internal. We think from here. It's from here out. And the reality is each one of us, each one of us needs the righteousness of Christ. Each one of us is precious in his sight in the, in the fact that we're all born and created in the image of God, that we're like the moon that reflects his glory. But when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of his son. I'm hoping he doesn't see any more my shoddy righteousness. And I'm sure of this, that the one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's another reminder that it's all of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Our sanctification was just as effectively purchased at the cross as our justification. That's the point I'm trying to make. God is in the process of, of sanctifying me. He has started it, and what he started he will finish. And he's making me more, me more like his son every day. He's purifying me more every day. He's setting me apart for his service more every day. And the gospel teaches me that my victory over the flesh has already been won at the cross. In other words, the gospel says I can rest in what Jesus did and let God win my battles. You don't have an outline in your bulletin, so I'm going to give you one. Verse 3, our conflict is both real and unseen. It's both real and unseen. For though we walk in the flesh, it says, we are, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So the idea of a military campaign, you'll find a lot of military terms, war terms, battle terms used here during this sermon because that's what this is about, spiritual warfare. The idea of a military campaign is something that is on a large scale. It's something that's long-term, ongoing, and it's, it's a conflict between one or more parties, right? And one of the most, if not the most, significant day-to-day -day challenge for the Christian life is to remember that we're soldiers in a battle, in an ongoing conflict, one that is relentless, one that we can't escape, we can't get a furlough from, there's no ceasefire, there's no timeout. Timeout. I, I, I got I to take a timeout. I can't, I can't deal with this. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. There's no getting away from it. It's a conflict that will never end this side of heaven. And here's the trouble with not being able to see that. The trouble with blind spots is, well, you can't see them, right? You don't know what you don't know. And like all those poor souls who have never been told that uh, they can't sing to save their lives, yet they somehow become contestants on American Idol, yikes. Anyway, right? Here's the thing. We live our lives focused on ourselves. We live like every other human being in the moment. We take each day as it comes, and, uh, and we try to live as followers of Christ, as Jesus would, right? That's what we try to do, that whole WWJD thing, okay? But here's the thing. Our eyes are almost exclusively focused on the horizontal, okay? 
on what's going on here and in this world, uh, in the people and the activities and the circumstances of daily life. Just getting through each day successfully, whatever that means. Um, trying to grasp for those, like the, you, you know, remember when you have a, somebody flashes a, a, fl- a flash bulb for a, a camera in front of you and you see those little spots in front of your eyes and you want to try and grab them, right? That's all you see is little spots. And that's like those happy moments in our lives. They're, they're there for a second and then they're gone and they maybe appear, but they're gone. They're very temporal. And it's those things, those happy moments that we long for and we long for them to be not just moments, but we long for that to be our entire life because that's the way God's created us. He's made us to want that, to desire that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right with that. As a matter of fact, Jesus preached a whole sermon about that very thing on the side of a hill near the Sea of Galilee where some of you were, and you saw that, right? So the difficulty is, is if we're so focused on the life and the circumstances, and in particular, here's the thing, particular the people in front of us, that we're blind to the real battle, the real war, the, the very real military campaign conflict that we're in the middle of every moment of every day. We're oblivious to it, it seems. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about this in uh, 6, 10 to 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. You can look it up later if you want. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's a whole sermon, just that little phrase, just that sentence right there. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So according to this, spiritual warfare, maybe this surprises you, and, and maybe when you saw the title of the sermon, alluding to spiritual warfare, you kind of got this picture in your mind of what goes on in the movies, right? But but the the thing is, in this passage, and really in every passage that talks about spiritual warfare or anything related to it in all of Scripture, there's there's nothing involving you know rotating heads or, or or scary voices, otherworldly voices, or exorcism, or you know, um, or anything like that. Not really. Although I have to say, just step back for a second. I have personally felt, palpably felt, the presence of real evil in places I've been in the world, uh, and, and it's a, it's a momentary, but it's real. Uh, feeling of conflict and almost dread in those moments. But that's not the norm according to Ephesians, and it's not the norm according to this passage here. Our wrestling, our warfare, our daily uh, um, battle, if you will, is definitely on a spiritual plane, though, not a physical or temporal plane, not this horizontal plane. Nowhere here or, again, in any other place does it talk about it in any other terms. And, and the thing is, nowhere are we given any specific uh, strategic or, or tactical uh, instructions. This is how you involve yourself 
in confronting the devil and his minions with uh, some formulaic process or, or, uh, or mantra or magical you know, words or phrases um, to get the enemy to go away and leave us alone. It's a spiritual battle that we experience in this physical life here on planet Earth, but it's a war that's waged on a spiritual plane. We're here in the horizontal, but this takes place outside of the horizontal and temporal plane. So what's that mean for me today? Say, that's nice. Okay, I get that. What does it mean? Well, what it means is that my spouse is not my enemy. Let's sink in for a second. Remember that argument you had on your way to church this morning? Oh, I know. I know you did. Or yesterday or last night or whatever it was. Your wife is not your enemy. Your husband is not your enemy. Your parent is not your enemy. Isaac? Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that out loud. Just kidding. Your child is not your enemy, right? Your fellow church member is not your or my enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. Your employee is not your enemy. The other driver, the other knucklehead on the road is not your enemy. The person in the line in front of you in the grocery store that's taken forever and has a thousand coupons and now wants to write a check of all things in this day and age, Lord help me, is not your enemy. I, I'm, this is me here. Inanimate objects are not my enemy. Oh, this consarn thing, why won't it work? Because well, it's a thing, right? The laws of physics are not my enemy, okay? If you don't hold on to something, it'll drop to the floor. That's not your enemy. The war that you and I wage, in, and here's the thing, here's the key, in this fallen and broken world with fallen and broken people all around us, right? The war that I wage that is accompanied by the evil desires of my flesh that are in me, Right, the world system around me and the unseen but very real enemy of my soul, that's where the war takes place. That's the real enemy. God talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil, the enemy of my soul. It also means that if I want to wage this campaign successfully, if I want to win the fight every day, if I want to have victory, I need to do it in God's way. And his way of waging spiritual warfare is cross-centered, Jesus-centered. Imagine that, a Jesus-centered community. Jesus-centered, gospel-centered. And the gospel says, I can rest in what Jesus did and let God win my battles. Now, don't be confused by that statement. You are personally participating in the conflict. But here's the thing. Ultimately, it's Christ that is doing it all for you and for me. He's the one that's at work in you, not just in you, but, but through you as well to others. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Again, the gospel says that I can rest in what Jesus did and let God win my battles. Verse 4 says that our strategy is both offensive but passive. The strategy is offensive but passive. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So there's a campaign that is the bigger picture, the war itself, the conflict itself, but then how do we wage that war? How do we go about being involved in it? That's what strategy is. Okay? It's, and so what we said is that spiritual warfare is something, not something that I do, that you and I do, it's something that God does in me and then through me. I don't win my struggle over sin over guilt, over discouragement, over frustration, over anger, or lust, or fear, or depression, or bitterness, by obeying more rules. Well, if you only just follow this list of five things, or ten things, or twenty things, whatever it is, just do that every day, and guess what? It's all going gonna, it's all gonna to be good. You will never, I will never win this struggle by doing more by performing. I have victory over those things when I acknowledge the gospel. That is, that I need God at every turn. I mean, that's really the gospel at its core, that God saves sinners, not just eternally, but he saves them in every moment, in every thing. And so I need God at every turn, in every moment, for everything. And I need to recognize, my, and this is where my victory begins, that he fights the battles for me. That in reality, he has already, here's the thing, that we, don't, we just don't remember this. He's already fought the battle at the cross and won it. And not just, uh, you know, not just the individual engagement that I'm involved in right now in this struggle, whatever it is. Maybe it's staying awake on a hot day because somebody's talking to you, Okay. Whatever the struggle is, it's not, it's not something that has not already been fought and won, even this momentary thing, or even the, the, the greater picture, the conflict and circumstances that I'm looking at right now or the whole war itself have all been handled by God. He's won the victory already at the cross. Here's a passage out of Second. Chronicles. I'm sorry I don't have it up on the screen for you, but if you want to turn it, it's probably not a bad idea. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Book of Chronicles chapter 20. It was a time when Jehoshaphat was the king, one of the rare kings who actually followed after the Lord, did what was right in God's eyes. And uh, I'm kind of skipping around a little bit, but it's good for you to have that in front of you, and then you can maybe look at it a little bit later. But after the the Moabites and the Ammonites, and and with them there were some uh, uh, Muonites, just some of them, not all of them. So apparently that was a scary thing. They came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And here's the the key here in this, this section. Our God, oh, our God, Will you not execute judgment on them? So Jehoshaphat turns to the Lord. 
See, there's no indication that Jehoshaphat did anything, any kind of, there wasn't any kind of magical words, magical formula, here's your, you know, here's your 10 things that you do, and now everything's going to be good. He didn't do that. He, he turned immediately to the Lord because he saw the enemy was too great for him. Listen to what it says. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. That's one of the biggest mistakes that you and I make, that somehow or another we think we can get through this Christian life, even in those, in those little insignificant moments of, you know, somebody ticks me off or, or, or I'm frustrated because of whatever thing. That somehow or another I can, even get, I can get through those little things. But the, 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 the mistake that we make is that it is... Not that thing, that circumstance or that person that's our enemy. It's what's behind it. It's who is behind it. The spiritual forces that are there behind it, trying to defeat us at every turn. And it is a great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Wow, right? We don't know what to do. Tell me, that sin that continuously gets you down, you know what it is. You know exactly what it is. Just think about it for a second. That sin, that one thing, that one, that one little burr that gets under your saddle, right? <laughs> that one thing that will not let you go. Are you keeping your eyes on the Lord in that moment? Or do you think you can handle that? And later on in verse 17, it says, You will not need to fight this battle. <laughs> Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. I don't know about you, but the, the little things of life are what get me down. The big things, I don't know why, but I can just let those just go because I, I, my brain somehow or another, my goofy head accepts the fact that those are things that I cannot control. But what I don't get and what I don't, what doesn't register and then, and then what's not fleshed out in my life on a day-to-day -day basis is all of the circumstances of life, all the stuff that goes on around me, all the heat of life, we'll call it, that bears down on, down on everyone, that those things are all beyond my control. I have nothing to do with that. I can't control your attitude towards me or, or how you drive or what you say or what you feel and then how that, re how that feeling uh, you know, is reflected to me. Or, I can't control any of that. I can't control what happens. I don't know what to do, Lord, but my eyes are on you. And what he says is stand firm. And see, he says, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. It's okay. Tomorrow, go out against them. Easy for you to say, God. <laughs> right? And the Lord will be with you. So either that's true or it's not. So either that's true or it's a lie. If you step out, will God be with you? According to this, God fights our battles. God conquers the enemy. God wins the victory every single time, alone and without my help, without anything that I do at all. 
And there's no contingency here. So there's, there's no, if you don't do this and that, thus and such, if you, or if you do this, you do these things, right? Then I'll do the rest. God doesn't, he doesn't put anything like that in there. He doesn't say, so, so here you go, child of God. Here's, here's my part, and now here's your part. He doesn't say that. That's nowhere to be found here. Right? And he doesn't say, now get to work. Time to, to do your thing. God's promising here that like, maybe some of you can't relate to this, but there's a show some time ago, a guy named George Lopez, and he would say, I got this. And I, I'm, I have a strange mind, and oftentimes I hear the Spirit of God saying to me in my subconscious, I got this. I got this. It's okay. I can handle this. I'm God, and you're not. Now, for those who were under the law, there, was, there were uh, 613 Old Testament commandments that were purely human activity, okay? that God prescribed for a very specific people, for a very specific time, in a very specific context, with holy rituals and holy places and holy clothing and holy people and holy implements, and lots and lots and lots of blood and more blood, okay? until all of that was fulfilled in Christ on the cross. It was a very distinct culture by which those people were bound, and some of you had the experience of seeing that in action, in reality. Very specific culture, and that God, here's the thing, is that God and his, God's blessing, particularly, God's blessing was completely, here's the thing, his blessing was completely conditional on whether or not Israel kept their side of the bargain. It was an if-then proposition. If you do this, then this will happen. But for us now, under grace, there are 1,050 new covenant commandments, not just 613. And they're just as binding on us as those who are under, who were under the law for those of us that are under grace. And, and here's the thing. Let me step back a second and say, I don't see how anybody can fudge on that. You cannot fudge on that. You and I are bound by those things. We must do those things. There were 613 things that the old co covenant people, the nation of Israel, were supposed to do. We've got 1,050. And I get no sense anywhere in Scripture that these are mere suggestions in the New Testament. We are told, we are commanded to produce what God wants us to produce. And actually, here's the thing, it's the, it, it, the standard is even stricter. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what Jesus said. Look at how he took the law far deeper than the, than, uh, than the, the Jews took it. And it's not because it, 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 it went down to not just what we say and do, but even what we think and what we feel, what our motives are behind everything that we produce, all, the, all of our doing. And there was no room for compromise, none. No room for compromise. But here's the one profound, and I say, when I say profound, that's a, it's a total understatement. Very profound difference. And that is this, that, there, that for every single one of those 613 
laws, those were man-produced. Those were all something that those individuals had to do themselves. That the 1,050 New Testament commandments were first Christ-produced, that's the verses that we just read, and now in us are Spirit-produced, and now it becomes a because-therefore proposition, not an if-then proposition. So to say that we're not bound by commandments is foolishness, but to say that it is something that you and I do, that we do, is even more foolish. And it's more than foolish, it's dangerous. Because here's the thing, if redemption from start to finish is not all produced by God, then we are not redeemed at all. You say that again, if all of redemption is not produced by God, then we are not redeemed at all. From the time that our hearts are warmed to the truth of the gospel to the time that we stand face to face with our Redeemer, and I'm waiting for that day, it's all of God. He does it all. If you and I are striving to produce this level of righteousness that's talked about in the New Testament, it could only ever be something that's superficial, it's partial, and external at best. And really, when we try to do that, we're playing spiritual dress-up. That's what we're doing. We're playing spiritual dress-up. In, in, in at Grandma and Grandpa's house, we, we have in, in the, the kids' toy room, there's a, a couple of bins that filled with dress-up clothes, and the kids love to dress up. And that's really what we're doing when we try to do these things on our own, and we become the proverbial pig in a dress with a wig and a nearly convincing makeup job. <laughs> but that's all we become. Because at the heart level, we're not changed. We're not changed at all. We're acting, we're not being. It's the Spirit of God that lives inside of me as a child of God that convicts, he comforts, he encourages, he instructs, he illuminates, he directs, he motivates, and he prepares my heart to do God's will and God's way. Galatians 5 talks about the fact that if I walk in the Spirit, I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I have a quote that I found helpful in this regard. It says, that the life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal that we set ourselves. It is continually renewed, a continually renewed attempt simply to believe that someone else, with a capital E, has done all the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person, whether we achieve it or not. If that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right. It isn't. And as a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It is not even our life at all, but the life of that someone else rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. I'm crucified with Christ. He's the one that lives in me. So, that's nice. So what does it mean to me today, right now? How can I apply this? Well, what it means is that I need God in my life every moment for everything because the conflict never stops. Okay? It never stops. The war never takes a vacation. It means that I need the power of God, and, God, and, and particularly I need the power of God's word 
that the Spirit of God uses to cleanse my heart and my thoughts, to set me apart moment by moment at, it, at every step for himself. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to the Father that he would sanctify us through his truth and acknowledge that it's only his word that is the truth. It also means that as uh, on any battlefield, the lines of communication are vital for our survival. Not just God's communication to us, not just the word of God, but ours to him. It means that we need to pray constantly, constantly. First Thessalonians chapter 5, 17, very, very succinctly says, pray without ceasing. Pray continuously. Pray without stopping. Speak to him daily throughout each day. We need to pray. Matter of fact, there's no, really, there's no better daily reminder. It's a humbling reminder of our dependence on God, a reminder of the gospel, than prayer is. So although we're present in the conflict, we're here physically present in the conflict, our strategic advantage in that will always be our assurance that we will win, no matter how difficult or how impossible it seems that God is doing the fighting. That's what it also means. That verse that we just looked at indicates that we're on the offensive. Uh, Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians uh, 10. We're on the offensive, not the defensive. We're not waiting for the enemy to come to us. Okay? We're taking the fight to him. Our conflict is, it's real and we're involved personally, but here's the thing, it's passive as well. That is, we move toward and not away from, a, from conflict and we let God show up and... Quite frankly, we let God show off. We let God be God in the situation to display his glory and his grace. We move into enemy-occupied territory in our lives. That's the idea of the strongholds, the spiritual strongholds that are talked about in verse 4. And we let God wage his war against the enemy through us. So the gospel says that I can rest in what Jesus did and let God win my battles. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels, cracked pots. And then verse 5, our tactics involve both lies and the truth. So tactics, where the conflict is the, big, the bigger picture, the war itself, the, the, um, the strategy is how we wage that war. The tactics are the actual means by which we engage the enemy face-to-face. We stand and face the enemy and win the battle. And Ephesians talks about the fact that they're both offensive and defensive weapons. But listen to what it says in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. <coughs> the thing is, in this, there's the Ephesians passage that has it's sort of a broader um, picture of of that warfare, but in this passage, our fight is narrowed down to what goes on in our hearts and minds, and talks about the constant barrage of lies that we take in and often believe, and uh, we're confronted with and often take in and then believe and sometimes even act on them after that. So the world, here's the thing, the world about lies and the truth. 
the world would say that our, uh, that, and our flesh would say and the enemy would say that really truth is relative, that there really is no truth. But obviously we know that if we say that there's no truth, that becomes an absolute and a false absolute. We've absolutely said there absolutely is no such thing as absolutes. And this actually is the first and the worst lie that the enemy of our souls told Eve in the garden, that God didn't really mean what he said. It's not totally, literally true. It's, then what's truth anyway, right? We can't know the truth. There's nothing settled, nothing absolute, nothing true. Effectively, he's saying God is a liar. And in the previous uh, verse, verse uh, 4, we talked about strongholds and destroying them and tearing them down. Um, there's another quote here I have that Josh is going to put up as soon as he motors back to the thing that talks about what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a mindset, a value system, or thought process that hinders your growth, holding firmly to an argument. Okay? A stronghold is an accusation planted firmly in your mind. Satan establishes such a stronghold in God's people by implanting in their minds lies, falsehoods, misconceptions, especially regarding God's nature. That's key. Deeply rooted belief systems that were caught, not taught. As we see them and we hear them and we repeat them over and over in our minds and we live them. So what happens now is that we live under a functional dysfunction. But here's the victory. The gospel reconstructs our narrative. So our tactics, what we do tactically when, when we engage the enemy, what we have to understand that it is a 24-7 intentionality. It's something that we have to be intentional about every moment of every day when we engage the enemy. Our tactics require uh, that we take the initiative, that we act, not react, that we become, uh, you know, a, a, a thermometer, or rather a thermostat, not a thermometer. Notice that it says we're taking every thought captive. When the enemy's lies surface, we must move toward the conflict. How many of you love conflict? I don't see anybody's hand up. Nobody loves conflict. How many of you love arguments? Well, you love to win arguments. You love to argue but what if you know you're going to lose? <laughs> no, not so much. Okay. But what God tells us to do is to not back away from those conflicts, but to move towards, step into the conflict, move toward it. And when we do so, we capture those lies at the very threshold, this is a picture, the image given, of our hearts and minds, and we treat them as what they are, the enemy. If we entertain false concepts or ideas or standards or principles, if we treat the lie as though it's the truth, and then we act in light of that lie, the enemy's foothold in my heart, his stronghold in my heart and mind grows stronger. He's built that fortress in my life, and it will only get stronger. And, the vo and here's the other uh, very bad side effect, and that is that the truth, the voice of truth and God's truth and God's spirit within me is drowned out and sometimes silenced altogether. We don't hear it. We only hear the lie. Lies that would pretend to be true and call God a liar are what need to be torn down and destroyed. 
There's so many voices in our heads these days that present themselves as smarter and nobler and more reasoned and more educated. These are arguments or lofty opinions. King James to- uh, talks about them as vain imaginations set, that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Those lies cover a, a lot of ground, but mostly it comes down to what we believe about ourselves and especially what we believe about God in those difficult moments, in the heat of life, in those moments when life is at its worst, at its hardest, when struggle is the only thing that's going on in our life here on planet Earth. And, and when those things press down hard on us. You ever felt like that? I feel like that a lot. It just presses down hard and you feel like you can't escape. So what does that mean for me today? Well, what it means is that I cannot and I must not just float through my days passively minding my own business, as it were, because my business is not mine. My business is God's. I'm not the center of the universe, not even my own universe, but God is. And the life that I live is not about me. It's about him and what he wants me to do and be as an image bearer for him. There's one that's given me marching orders, if you will, for every day. While I'm still, still here on planet Earth, when I wake up breathing every, mo- uh, every morning, I understand by that that God has something for me to do and to be in that day. It means that when I'm frustrated, when life doesn't go the way I'd envisioned it, pay attention to this, if you would. When circumstances are not what I like, because this is getting down to the nitty-gritty. It's one thing to talk about the fact that our conflict is something that's spiritual, and it's another thing to say that God's the one that does the work. But here's when it gets down to what you and I do and should do and, and, and oftentimes don't do in those hard moments. When life gets very frustrating, when life doesn't go the way I envision it, when the circumstances are not what I like, and my frustration turns to impatience, and that turns to tension, right? I'm frustrated. My plan for the day is frustrated, whatever it is. And then I get tense, and then I maybe get anxious, and maybe I get fearful or I get sad. I might even get depressed. I might get angry. And I might turn to that individual in my heart and not forgive them, be totally unforgiving. And and that unforgiveness can turn to bitterness inside me. And then sometimes even revenge comes out of that bitterness. The lie that I've told myself then is that I, I really would, I personally would do a better job of being God than God is doing. That's really what we're doing. I'm saying by that that I really should be the one in control of my circumstances, that I have a better idea of what should have happened in that situation. That's exactly what I'm saying. And interestingly enough, it all starts with frustration. That's where it all starts. That is, here's here's what I mean by frustration. My plans for the day were frustrated. My plans for that moment for that conversation, for that interchange with that individual. My flawless logic about what life and living 
should be, that wasn't taken into consideration by God or by the universe or whatever we falsely may believe other than God when the day was planned. I wasn't consulted. (laughs) And now effectively, here's what happens. I'm holding God in contempt. I'm saying, God, you really don't know what you're doing. Well, the Bible says you're sovereign and you plan everything and you are perfect, but I really don't believe that because this circumstance is horrible. I hate it. And I don't like the way you made that work out for me. Okay? And here's the reality is, it comes down to this. I want control of my life. And I want control of every circumstance. And I want things to go the way I want them to go. And really, I want to be God. Sound like Eden? But here's the thing. This is his world, and I belong to him. He owns my life. Christ purchased me and reconciled me to the Father through his cross, through the gospel. I cannot do this on my own. I don't know what's best for me. I don't know what's best for each day. But here's the thing. There's a sovereign Lord of creation whose way is perfect. His plan cannot, will not fail And he knows what's best for me every moment of every day, every circumstance of every hour. It means that when the lie that God is not able to either change a very difficult circumstance or get me to the other side in one piece, when that lie crosses my mind, I am I'm bound by what this verse says to destroy that lie with the truth of God's word that says that. Whatever that situation is, it's impossible for me. But with God, all things are possible. If God's in the picture, all things are possible. It means that when I am sad and lonely and anxious and fearful or just plain bored, and I seek refuge, which, by the way, folks, that's what we do every single day. We're refuge seekers. When I seek refuge in something other than God himself, I've bought the lie. I believe that, and in that moment, I've, I believe that that thing that can only be found in God, the love, the joy, the peace, the contentment, the fulfillment that every human being seeks after from the time they're little ones, that which can only be found in God, a la Romans chapter 1, I've exchanged the creator for the creation. And I believe that somehow other people, maybe a specific place or a circumstance or possessions or maybe it's busyness or maybe it's food or a bottle or a pill or sex or physical exertion or exercise or even a screen. A screen. By the way, that's a real addiction. Did you know that? It's a real addiction and it's very damaging. Screen addiction. Or other distractions. Any mindless thing, like the TV that my dad used to call the idiot tube. Any mindless thing that takes our mind off of and, and gives us the, 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 the way out to ignore the conflict instead of facing it head on as God wants us to and has equipped us to do. Sometimes even here, and here this is important to understand, we're almost done. Sometimes even our emotional responses can be a place of false refuge. You say, what? Emotions? Yes. If your default emotion, I'll, I'll take my default emotion. 
If your default emotion is anger, every time something doesn't go your way, you are substituting that temporary emotional fix. And oh, by the way, there is an emotional, it is a fix. Because the hormones and the chemicals that are released when you get angry can be just as addictive as alcohol. Numerous studies have proven this. And every bit is destructive to you and I physically. That temporary rush of anger is now your place of refuge. That's where you run when it doesn't go your way. When your plan, your brilliant plan for that moment hasn't worked out, when my brilliant plan for that moment hasn't worked out, I run to that anger for refuge. I run for that rush, that emotional fix. And that's become my refuge in place of God. Never mind what the scriptures say, that I'm to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning me. Or never mind what it says in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that your steadfastness, has, when it has its full effect, you will be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Everything I'm seeking in that moment, that rush, is to be found in God and waiting patiently on him. That settled peace, the joy, that completeness, the thing that we really look for, we take up false refuge, and that can only be found in God, in his sovereign will and his grace. Maybe your default emotion is crying. Emotional tears can release hormones as well, and endorphins. Did you know that? And that while actually on the other, on the flip side of that, they're actually physically good for your body in, in moderation, can also be a place of false refuge in place of God. Emotional tears are interesting. <laughs> found this pretty interesting. Um, that um, younger men don't cry as much. Because here, here, tears, okay? Tears are a way of our bodies releasing toxins. Did you know that? And so, at least in one, several, a couple studies I looked at said that you know, younger men, uh, uh, they sweat a lot, so they don't cry a lot. And women don't sweat as much, younger women, and so they cry more. But as we get older, here's the funny thing, their roles are reversed. You ever notice how old men cry easily? We do. We do. Anyway. But here's the point. If I've taken refuge in the creation in any way, Romans chapter 1, and not the creator, I need to destroy that lie that these temporary and partial fixes will not fulfill my need for solace and for comfort, for refuge. Because Psalm 46.1 says this, God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in time of trouble. He is the only place of safety from the heat of this life. He is the only strong tower where I can run and find safety. He is the only comfort for my soul, even in the worst of circumstances. He's also my strength, it says. Even in my weakest moments, when all the cracks start to show, and you know what your biggest crack is, right? Your biggest weakness is, your biggest fault is, the sin that gets you down on every, at every turn in every day. You know what that is. And what the Bible says here in Psalm 46 is that God is not just our refuge, but he's our strength even in those moments. He's our strength. He's a very present help, it says then, right when I need him most in the time of trouble.
He is easy to find, like my grandson Mason, who made a little map that sits next to my desk in my office. It's planets and stars, and he said, it's a map, Grandpa. He said, so you can always find me if you need me. And see, that's the way God thinks about us. See, we're precious to him. He is there to be found. He's not just a refuge in strength. He's very present help in time of trouble. So waging gospel-centered warfare, and I end with this, means that I live each day in repentance and faith, rejecting the lies and acknowledging the truth about who God is and what that means for this life, and taking each step, each situation of life with a clear faith in God, and not only in his ability that he's God, but also in his plan and purpose and the goodness of his heart because of and through the cross to give me victory in the conflict and make me more like Jesus, his dear son. The gospel says I can rest in what Jesus did and let God win my battles. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. May you apply the truth of your word to each heart. May the Spirit of God be the one that reminds, that convicts, and that comforts. May you be king. May you be ruler. May you be God in our lives, Lord. May you be the one that shows us that the victory has already been won for every circumstance. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.